Okay, so this week is part two of the exposition of institutional exodus. And last week, just recap, we talked about uh, the reality of institutional exodus, what that word means, what that means in uh, our psychology, uh, as far as who the church is, and uh, just kind of recapped a lot of uh, what we, uh, the institution, uh, can do and the position that we can have and the, uh, the place that we can move into uh, for redeeming and reconciling uh, all things and the reality of not doing that results in an exodus of vibrant communities that can actually change the world. Uh, so this week I want to talk about some topics that I want to clarify. So I understand in these uh, seasons, uh, or in this season rather, uh, there were some topics that people who um, have been close to me over the years were kind of questioning. They were like, why um, you know, are you talking about this? Is it really necessary to have a stance on this or that? And what I do just want to say is, is that when you're in conversation with people, just like anybody else, sometimes you say things uh, in a way that you wouldn't say them if you could have prepared to say it. And so our conversations on this um, podcast are really candid. They're really open. Um, they're really fluid. It's a true conversation. And so I just want to start with that is that, yeah, some topics um, I've really changed on and I want to solidify exactly what people have brought up. Like, do you really believe that? Like, yeah, yeah, I really do. Um, but other things that people question me on, I'm like, no, that's not really what I meant. Sorry. <laughs> you know, uh, just maybe the way I articulated it in the moment was different. So um, I just want to bring some clarity around a few of those things. You know, uh, I've been a pastor, and uh, even though I'm not necessarily a vocational pastor right now, uh, I've been a uh, pastor's kid my whole life. Uh, I've been a preacher uh, since I was uh, age 21. So uh, preparing for messages and preparing for sermons, even whenever you put in 30 hours of work into a talk, it can still uh, be sort of, you know, um, foggy, let's say, on the what the point you were trying to get across was based on your word choice or, you know, live in the moment, whatever. Uh, you think you say one thing and you actually say another. So this little uh, section here, this second part of the exposition is to clarify some things. So I'm not going to maybe get to clarify everything, uh, but I do just want to bring up uh, just four topics. Bible, hell, Jesus, church. That's our agenda for today is Bible, hell, Jesus, church. I want to clarify some things around that. And some things uh, are clear to me. Some things I'm still trying to work through and figure out. Uh, so let's go and just jump right in. So the Bible. Let's talk about the Bible for a minute. So the Bible is an amazing, amazing library that has been collected and sorted through and edited over thousands of years. This is an ancient book. The reason that it is a holy book, literally holy Bible, literally holy is set apart. That's what the word holy means. Bible is Latin for book. So literally holy Bible means, I'll add a couple extra words for context, the book that is set apart. So really, literally what it would mean is the separate book or uh, the book that is unlike others. It's, it's a book that is uh, full of stories, of tales, of parable, of, you know, um, even some historical fact of the reality 
the history of the Hebrew people, of Jesus, of the early church and the apostles. It has absolutely immense wisdom and guidance, and we should trust it. We should trust the Bible. Now, not trust in the way that I think we've historically defined trust. We need to trust that the Bible is a book that is set apart. Sacred texts should be books that are set apart. Where I stand on any other holy book from any other religion, I don't feel like I'm actually at liberty to speak on that right now. I actually feel like it would be wrong of me to demean any other person's holy book. Uh, So I don't feel like I have to absolutely take a dump on and absolutely write off any other religious text to justify my own. Uh, That's kind of the equivalent of like saying, my football team is really, really good and yours sucks. And the only reason I'm saying yours sucks is to basically justify that mine is really, really good. I don't feel the need to do that. If your team's good, they're just good. You know, I'm from Indianapolis. So if the Colts are good, they're just good. You don't have to tell everybody how much you hate the Patriots, although we do hate the Patriots. (laughs) But really, we don't have to do that if our team is truly good. And I'm here to tell you the Bible is truly good. It is a good book taken in its reality and its context to understand it and what it truly is, to respect it in the way that it should be respected and to read it in the way that it should be read. It is truly good. Just like anything else, it can be used for not good. But the first thing I'm going to do is I'm not going to demean anyone else's holy book to elevate mine. That goes for any belief or whatever. So let's talk really quickly just about the Bible. I don't believe that the Bible should be read as constitution. And what I mean by that is I don't think that the Bible is just this sort of flat text, this sort of thing that we can just open up to anywhere and we can read something and apply it. I do believe in plain readings, but I also believe in plain readings with the understanding of the nature of the author of the book of anything else. I think it would be a poor decision to go to Barnes and Noble and to pick up a book random off the shelf without understanding the section of the store that it's in, to understand the even the author, to have a general understanding. If you really want to take that book seriously, I think you should have an understanding of that author. Uh, not certainly you don't need to read their autobiography, but just understand, you know, uh, the nature of who this person is and, you know, um, I think that's really important in understanding it. And so I think that just as much as you walk into Barnes and Noble, uh, that you see areas of, you know, uh, you see areas of poetry, of literature, you see areas of history, you see areas of fiction, nonfiction, you see the kids area, um, you know, you have all sorts of departments. And I think that in the same way with the Bible, we have many different departments under the same roof. So in between that imitation leather Bible that you paid way too much for at Lifeway, there are many, many, many different genres, different authors, different circumstances, and many biblical teachers would agree with us on that. However, what they wouldn't necessarily agree with, and what I believe that the Bible is, is that this is human beings writing a book. Immediately people say, oh, well, don't you think it's inspired by the Holy Spirit? Don't you think this is God's word to man and, and all of that? And I would say, yes, but you do have to understand, like Isaiah was Isaiah. Like when he pens, it is Isaiah. This is a man who has a paradigm, who has a perception, who has a cultural reality, uh, 
who even has a frustration, as we see in a lot of his writings, and even somewhat of an agenda to be able to articulate what he believes God is saying. And we say that, so what we they believe God is saying, yes, that is the, the Holy Spirit. That is God speaking through people, of course. But to say that like that only happened then and it doesn't happen now is, you know, kind of the equivalent of saying that like, you know, a cessationist theory of the gifts of the Spirit. That only happened then and it doesn't happen now. No, God is still speaking through his people. We still have the Holy Spirit. Should the Bible be taken as sacred text? Yes. Should it be added to? Probably not. But the defiance of the reality that it has never been added to is frankly naive. So our Bible has been through a lot of stuff. It's been pulled through the ringer. Uh, so even in ancient culture in, in Jewish times, so there were scribes and there was people who were Absolutely. Their job in life was to correctly record things and to preserve them. And that is important to note that they are very reliable, but we have to understand they're very reliable in the context and the reality that they were living in, in the paradigm that they lived in. Just like with the writers of Jesus, you know, even like I said, I do want to confirm that we do need to note that the gospels, the very first gospel that was written was the gospel of Mark. Mark was, is the shortest gospel, and it was penned nearly a decade after Christ's ascension. It was actually said that it, it was more of a rubric for Matthew to create his gospel. Uh, and so we do need to make honest recognitions about the nature of our Bible. This isn't a book that was just sort of like, you know, plopped out of heaven that God wrote himself. This actually was real people trying to have dialogue about it, get their story straight even, I believe, in some areas of how they were going to pin this. I mean, the narrative of Jesus was simply by word of mouth. It was campfire conversation and parable for a decade before Mark wrote any of this stuff down. And so that doesn't discredit it. You need to understand, I've not discredited the Bible because of this. It's just an honest evaluation of it. We do need to know also that the Bible actually wasn't a um, an official document in how we understand it today until it's 323, I believe, if memory serves me correct, A.D. at the Council of Nicaea, where people came together. And it was actually, I believe it was nine guys, nine bishops, who sat around the table and decided what was in, what was out. Once again, that isn't to demean the Bible. That isn't to demote the Bible. That isn't to say it's not full of wisdom and is not sacred. It, sacred. it certainly is. It's just bringing fact to the reality of how you got that Bible that you paid $60 for at Lifeway. So, is there things to be learned? Absolutely. But something else that should be noted too is that even with the Gospels, it was not unique in that day and age to make updates and edits to other people's work. So today, if you were to write a book, if I were to write a book, which I am planning on doing, <laughs> little plug, um, if I were to write a book and publish that book, well, it actually wouldn't technically be published in ancient times, but go with me here for a second. Publish that book, and then somebody said, you know what, that's, that's actually a really good point, but you know what, in my understanding and in my context and culture, it'd actually be a little bit better to be said this way 
and actually the form of it should change just a little bit. So I'm going to tweak this just a little bit. Uh, you know, in today's day and age, I'd be like, dude, that is my work. I worked hard on that. My name is on it. I am the author. You cannot mess with my artistic work. You can't do that. That actually wasn't the case in ancient times. It was almost like there was a, uh, how basically in Hollywood they say a, um, uh, a creative license to be able to take a story and to kind of do different things with it. So there's an ability in, in Hollywood that if there's a story or even a true story, that there is creative license to be able to tweak that to the agenda of the director. It was a little bit more like that in the ancient world when it comes to uh, the reality of when it comes to the reality of uh, the, the the letters that were generated about the gospels. So when we look at these gospels, it was actually people were able to, as they got these as necessary, make little edits and updates uh, to it. And so it would still be, for instance, the gospel of Mark, um, but you didn't necessarily, if you made an edit, you didn't have to initial it and put your little thing there. So what we have is the closest thing to uh, original texts in the original form thousands of years ago. We don't have confirmation that all of those are exactly correct from the actual pen of Mark. We're just using Mark as an example of the gospel. So uh, I believe that there are there is merit, like Luke says that this is Luke's, you know. Um, John says that this is John's, um, you know, and but we, we don't, have the ability to necessarily read it as constitution. Uh, we don't have the ability um, to be able to say that this is exactly what these people wrote down and it's concrete and it's never changed. Once again, does it demean it? No. But it's helpful for us to know that God actually works in and through all of that stuff. So just as much as the Bible isn't a constitution that can't be read as something that's concrete, neither can our life or faith be. Our faith is fluid. Our God is fluid. He is alive. He is active. He's breathing. Just as how boring would it be if our life was bound to just, you know, black ink on a white paper? No, it's full of color. It's full of life. It's full of um, all of these amazing attributes and relationships and circumstances and ups and downs and all of these things that make actually life great is the same way that God is. He's continuously on the move and moving and creating new things and doing new things. And the Bible helps us understand God more, but it's not the finality constitution of this is how we do it. This is how we see it. It is helpful for that. So I do believe the Bible. I trust the Bible. I have a an immense respect for it. I always have and I always will. Um, so I'm never demeaning the Bible and I'm never saying you don't need it. It's absolutely necessary, but it is a collection of writings that has been through a lot of stuff throughout the years. And we can not add to it actually physically, but our lives add to the narrative. Our lives add to the narrative of the, of the scriptures. The only way that those scriptures come alive is through you. We partner with the divine and the reality of the scriptures being made alive and known. You know, my friend Elisha, he was on the on episode early uh, whenever I first started this podcast. And 
uh, I remember I was super, and once again, I was super, super like conservative, like Calvinist and very sola scriptura sort of person, you know, um, years ago. And Elisha was challenging me on some of this stuff because I would say like, he's, you know, he's definitely a charismatic person and he, he's very wise. Uh, I love you, Elisha. I know you're listening. And basically uh, I mentioned, yeah, but you know, you don't, there's nowhere in the Bible that you can prove that. And he said, there's nowhere in the scriptures for the new Testament that they could prove anything that they were doing. And I was like, whoa, (laughs) that's insane thought. Like everything that happened in the apostle's life, everything that even happened in a lot of Jesus actions were never able to be justified in the text that was held holy and sacred at the time. Did that demean the holy and sacred text? No. Did that mean that we don't use the holy and sacred text in their day? It would have been the Torah. Absolutely not. It was still held to such a high regard, but the fact is our lives bring shape to the reality of Torah, to the reality of Bible, to the reality of scripture, to the reality of God not being bound to a binding. So where do I stand with the Bible? I love it. I have a high respect for it. Uh, I think saying that it is inerrant is demeaning it. Um, I don't believe in inerrancy because I believe that actually demeans and demotes the Bible. Um, uh, so I would recommend here on this topic, um, you know, uh, love him or hate him. I love him. Rob Bell's recently wrote a book, uh, called what is the Bible? I think it's supremely helpful. Also, Brian McLaren wrote a book called a new kind of Christianity for almost all of these topics. It's helpful, but especially on the reality of the Bible, uh, Brian McLaren's book, a new kind um, of Christianity is crucial for that. It's 10 questions that are reshaping the faith. Uh, All of that is very helpful as much as more uh, resources I can certainly give to you if you're more interested in the Bible uh, and the reality of it for our lives. Um, Secondly, hell. I'm going to go ahead and move through all of this stuff because uh, timing. So hell. Now, I realize all of these are big topics. These can be series in and of themselves, and they probably will be but I just want to give a brief um, exposition on hell and what I believe about hell. So hell is actually a term that we don't see. Uh, It's actually an English word that we, it's the best thing that we can kind of get to Hades, Hades, Gehenna, things of that nature. Um, But the reality of hell and the connotation that we have given to it as an eternal conscious torment of people burning forever, forever in a place deep in the earth or wherever it might be, is frankly more informed by medieval uh, realities of the um, the Christian faith uh, and the Catholic faith, and actually really, really informed by Dante's Inferno, which Dante's Inferno was informed by the reality of the Catholic, um, you know, understanding and theology of hell at the time, which actually was used more as a device for fear and control than it was more for an actual help for anything or anyone else. It should also be noted that whenever hell is mentioned by Jesus, um, that that word is always in association with Gehenna or Hades. Uh, I think that uh, the reality of that Jesus came to save you from hell, I think is definitely a newer concept and theme uh, that was actually birthed out of, um, frankly, not... Uh, how do I say this without, you know, not being (laughs) completely flippant? Um, 
basically more birthed not out of a hope for people and what they could potentially be uh, in the reflection and the acceptance of living the life of Jesus, but more so um, trying to get people to associate to a, a form or an idea or a thought that could bring, um, you know, that could bring people under a regiment or a regime of the um, the governing religious force. So it was actually used more as a tactic, a fear tactic, a scare tactic, that people would be scared about the afterlife, therefore submit to the rules of our organization or tradition. And so once again, going back, this also leads back to the Bible. Um, where I'm at right now, and because it's really about just my understanding of things and my exposition, where I'm at now is I really don't hold to, and I know in the episode with Malik, I spoke very flippantly like, you know, no, of course I don't believe in a eternal, eternal conscious torment. That's ridiculous. Like I know I was being a little bit, um, you know, kind of forward or very, um, you know, kind of demeaning towards that view. I think it's a valid view that, that you know, people can find biblical merit for that, but people frankly can find biblical merit for whatever they want to believe in. I mean, you uh, the whole thing with slavery uh, was that the South thought that the North was becoming apostates because they were fleeing from the scriptures that had to do with slavery. So, I mean, slavery was defended by the scriptures. Many things. I mean, that's just the easy target one. Uh, but you have to understand the North were apostates for wanting slaves to be free. So the Bible can be used for whatever agenda that you have to fulfill. Uh, so hell being one of those, certainly you can definitely create a theology for an eternal conscious torment. But I think that the overall narrative of the Bible, the overall message of Jesus and um, the, the reality of the nature of God, I think are in standing opposition to any sort of, uh, you know, torment or violence or, um, you know, absolute agony for someone for a literal eternity. I think that stands in opposition. Um, I think that very, very basic understandings. I think two things. I think one, Gehenna um, was a literal place. So people say, do you believe in a literal hell? Yeah, it was literally outside of the city, a place where flames always were, where trash were burned and where people uh, were basically go to be cremated. Uh, And so it was not an honorable way, certainly, uh, to to die or to um, to be, you know, um, uh, buried or however, if you will. But it, it was definitely a place that when Jesus referenced Gehenna, people knew what he was talking about. So when people when he referenced hell, uh, you know, when he whenever he talks about to the religious people that they're going to find themselves there, actually, a lot of them did. So literally, when Jerusalem was destroyed in A.D. 70, uh, where it was flattened by the Roman Empire, which when Jesus predicts the end of the world, that's what he's talking about. Uh, He's not talking about in 2017. I understand we have a lot of stuff, you know, going on right now. We have Hurricane Irma about to, you know, come through Florida. Jesus was talking about a destruction of the world because Jerusalem was the center of the world uh, in Jewish thought. And it actually did come to complete ruin. And whenever he talks about fleeing to the hills, he's talking about the dispersion uh, that's happening. And literally, whenever Rome came to flatten Jerusalem, many religious people did find themselves in Gehenna. 
they were killed and burned in unhonorable ways right there outside of the city. So Jesus' prediction was absolutely relevant. It was right, and Gehenna was a literal place outside of the city. Uh, furthermore, I would state, too, uh, you know, that when the famous John 3.16 uh, says that that no one would perish, but they would have eternal life. And I could quote many verses um, that really um, bring about this reality of uh, slang term would be annihilationism, uh, but a more, um, you know, uh, intellectual term would be uh, conditional immortality. Uh, I think that's where I sin. Um, I, I sit more right now is an annihilationist view. I, I'm not quite sure. Uh, I'll talk a little bit more about being a hopeful universalist in just a moment, but um, I think that's where I sit. If I'm going to have the Bible help inform me, um, Jesus, what he's talking about is, is that, that those would perish. He's talking about and not only in this life, are you going to perish? And absolutely many of you know what it's like to feel dead in this life. You know what it's like to feel no life. I'm going to be honest. I work in a cubicle job. It is totally not my personality at all. There are days that I feel dead and I don't feel like I'm living the life of the ages. So eternal life literally means the life of the ages, a life that is full, that's abundant, that is that the burden uh, is light that Jesus talks about this way of living, this sort of born againness into an enlightened understanding that we would be born from above, not of this world, that we would have a reality that would enable us to live a life that no one else is able to live apart from this spiritual awakening, uh, this rebirth into its reality to have a eternal life, a life of the ages. Um, you know, we don't always live into that. I don't always live into that. My goal is to live into that more, but I don't always live into that. And so just using John 3.16, that, that no one would perish, but they would have eternal life. Not only is it talking about being alive today or being dead today, but in addition, uh, if we're talking about uh, if there really is an afterlife, which um, this is going to be kind of a stark statement as well. Uh, but here's the reality is no one really knows. I know that might be scary and it freaks me out. I do have a hope. I do have a hope for an afterlife. But the reality is no one really knows. The white light that we see is actually a chemical in our brain that's being released. Kind of like everything being released in your body. Like when you, you know, uh, you know, crap your pants when you die or whatever, you know, like that's that chemical that's being released in your brain is the white light. So nobody really knows. I understand that's scary. But if we are trusting that there is an afterlife, I believe this word perish literally means perish. I believe that death literally means death. I believe in the beginning in Genesis when he says you will surely die, he means absolutely that the curse is that they would die, that they would be dead, that there would be no more, that they'd be annihilated, that they would be extinct, that they would be absolutely nothing left, no remnant. And so if we're holding to if the righteous have eternal life and we're not just talking about life of the ages, if we really take that in the more, you know, um, thousand years after uh, Jewish ancient culture and, you know, Western idea of, you know, that. We are going to live, you know, not in heaven, but in earth, the new earth for eternity after, you know, all of the <laughs> events of judgment happen. If we're really going to to believe that, then where do the wicked people go? Where do the evil people go? What happens to those people who didn't believe and 
who didn't, you know, trust in the Lord Jesus for this eternal life that he speaks of. And I think that the scriptures unanimously are pretty clear about a, uh, a death, a finality, a annihilation, a cease to exist um, with that. And so um, if we're going to hold to that, I think where I'm at right now, um, you know, I'm, we're, we're all open to continue our spiritual journey and our theology can evolve. I think where I'm at right now is that I believe, you know, annihilationism is a reality that if, if there is an afterlife, those who have not trusted and have lived in the life of love um, will cease to exist. And that is their judgment that from the dust they came into the dust, they will return uh, to be no more. Uh, and that those who live the life of, of love and following Jesus and uh, the pattern of the essence of Jesus, not necessarily the pr- proclamation of faith in Jesus, but the attributes of what it means to live in Jesus, because he says, Many of you say, you know, uh, that you know me, but yet I will say, depart from me, uh, workers of lawlessness. You know, not just that we make declarations or statements or we believe and, you know, confess, but that we actually live kingdom pattern lives. If that's what merits eternal life, I think that those people will be with God forever and that the others will be uh, what Jesus says or even what Paul says, you know, that the wages of sin is death. And if sin is something that is innate to humanity, that, you know, apart from Jesus, that death, finality is the, um, you know, the, 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 the end conclusion for humanity that have not uh, lived a life uh, based in love. Um, I would note that I think this potentially could be greater than the Christian religion. Uh, that people that that don't necessarily have access to, know of, or have made a, an absolute declaration of faith in Jesus, who was a, a a Jewish man who lived in first century, uh, you know, Jerusalem, well, Galilee. Um, you know, I I think that it it's bigger than that and more grand than that. I would uh, reference um, a book that's super controversial, but very good. Love wins. Uh, I think Rob Bell does an excellent job in that. Um, I also think that, um, you know, that the liturgists have some good things to say on the names um, episode of the liturgist podcast towards the end. Uh, Michael Gunger, uh, he does an analogy of what it means for the divine to show up in all cultures and we all interpret it differently, but the essence of all is the same. And I think that's where we should lead into this idea of universalism. So universalism has a little bit of merit. Uh, I believe that, you know, uh, I, I think, and I'm going to start with this. I believe every believer, every follower of Jesus has a duty to be a hopeful universalist. I think every believer has a duty to be a hopeful universalist. And the reason why I think that is that if we truly believe that God loves all people and he's in pursuit of all people. I, and if we read the scripture that says he's restoring and renewing all things, I think it's only our duty to be hopeful that the fact that that would be a reality, that we start with the hopeful fact that people will be redeemed, restored, reconciled, renewed, all of these things into the father. And some people have an idea of universalism, Uh, That's just like, oh, anything goes, you know, just live the life you want to live, believe what you want to believe, and everybody goes to heaven. And that is a a, a philosophy of universalism. 
There's another philosophy of universalism that says, you know, in Revelation where it says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that when everyone does that, they come to the realization that Jesus is who he says he is and therefore all are redeemed and included. Um, there's another um, form of universalism that is there is a way of living life um, that we are calling people to. It may not be exclusively Christianity, but there certainly is the code of love, as I would like to call that and coin that. So if anybody else has, sorry, you can't have it. It's mine. Live by the code of love. If we are truly going to live into that, that that, that is merit uh, for us to enter into, um, you know, eternity with God one day if, you know, in fact, um, you know, uh, a life after death is a reality and that everyone has love in them at some point and that no one could never be loving to a unloving to a loving God upon seeing him and meeting him face to face. Therefore, everybody's nature of love becomes fully awakened and every single person um, lives in harmony with the divine there ever after. Um, I think there's some merit to it. Uh, so there's a book on this um, called The Four Views of Hell, and I think it should be noted uh, where I think we should be hopeful universalist that we should have the hopes for everyone to come to faith. As Paul says, that, he, he, that God doesn't want anyone uh, to perish but all to have eternal life. Once again, I think he's implying more for this life um, than if there is life to come. Um, which I, I'll talk about in next week's episode about, I think it's more about reclaiming the faith and living the fullness of life in this life. <laughs> and we should, you know, maybe steer away from the afterlife so much because frankly, we don't know, but it does have some merit to be able to talk about, but it's really not the main thing. The main thing is now. The main thing is here. The main thing is this life. And so um, I do just want to note that there is some good resources out there um, for views of the afterlife. Uh, the Four Views of Hell is good. If you're interested in annihilationism more, I would reference the Rethinking Hell podcast with Chris Date. Uh, he's excellent. He's actually conservative. He's a Calvinist. Uh, for those of you guys that uh, do not like those, you'll actually like this guy, though, because... You know he's 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 solid. He's a good dude. He has an amazing work on the the idea of annihilationism. He also has who where he believes that that is actually a conservative evangelical view. Um, so I think that if you're interested in that, check out the Rethinking Hell podcast and the book The Four Views of Hell. I would say that um, your view of hell, whatever it may be, does not put you in or out of the camp of following Jesus. That was not Jesus' main thing. That wasn't his main message. The main message was the kingdom of God and people becoming fully alive through the awareness of the Holy Spirit within them. And that is the central thing. Uh, hell isn't the central thing. Um, but uh, we do need to have conversations in some points. But I do want to state that no one is in or out if they do or don't believe in eternal conscious torment annihilationism or, you know, uh, conditional immortality or universalism and um, spacing the fourth one right now. Forgive me. <laughs> so uh, I want to move right along here. Uh, Jesus. Let's talk about Jesus for a moment. Uh, so Jesus was a man born. Uh, he was a victim. Well, he's not a man born. He was a baby born to a, a girl, uh, a young girl named Mary um, in uh, Nazareth, uh, back in 
ancient Jewish times. We now uh, understand that as the first century. And he was a Jewish man that was born uh, from Mary. The, the narrative, the, the tale is, is that she was a virgin um, and that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and he confounded people at the early age of 12 and even so much so, so that uh, whenever he was even a baby, kings were trying to kill him because everybody seemed to know that he was who um, he eventually, people would say about him, uh, not even necessarily who he said he was, but who, what, what people would claim him to be. And then he, um, you know, lived a an exemplary life, um, a life that was um, completely the archetype of what life should be, uh, of what each one of us should press into and, and should live and, and should be about, and um, ultimately dies for the belief um, and for the action and for the life of love that he leads and the inclusion of people and the... Um, the social implications that he had that were against the government, that he claimed to be the son of God, but Caesar was actually supposed to be the son of God. On every coin, on every currency, it said that Caesar was. Jesus said that, you know, that he is the son of man, and people called him the son of God. You know, uh, that, that people said that the only way uh, to live a good life was to um, either you know, for Jewish people, it would be to keep the commandments and all of these things. But if you were a Roman citizen, it would be to that the the life of Caesar was the only way. That Caesar is the only one uh, for the the way to life. And Jesus says, "I am the way to life." And things that are very very subversive to the political climate of almost ninety percent of taxation. And Jesus said, "Blessed are the poor, not you who steal from the poor." You know, and he's saying all of these things that are directly linked to the political and religious nature of the time, which ultimately get him killed, both politically and religiously, get him nailed to a cross. Three days later, um, some of his closest followers claim that he has been raised from the dead. It is later noted that more than 500 people saw him and he ascended into the heavens and his actual body has yet to be uh, ever discovered, which leads many Christians, uh, including myself, to believe that resurrection is indeed a reality as far-fetched as it may seem. So that's the nature of Jesus from a strictly historical mindset right now. So hear me from a strictly historical mindset. Um, so Jesus, I absolutely believe, um, is, is the way he is not, I'm not talking about a way to escape hell as we've recently just talked about, but he's actually the way to experience the fullness and the abundant of life of what it means to be one with the divine Jesus in John 17, he prays and he says, father, would you make them as in his disciples and all followers thereafter be one with you as I am one with you. So what he is saying is, is that he wants us to be one. That means we have the capability to be one with God. Our oneness, I know that word has a lot of baggage, but our oneness with God absolutely mirrors the life of Jesus, which brings us a life of the ages, an eternal life, an awareness of the spirit within us that enables us to be messengers of reconciliation. That's what Paul says, to be messengers of reconciliation that all things would live into the reality that the divine is as close to them as the breath in their lungs and their oneness with God is there and we can be reconciled and restored in the awareness of the kingdom that is at hand. So the 
only time that ministry is ever listed, the only rubric for ministry that is, is in 2 Corinthians 5. And where Paul says in 17 that we are messengers of reconciliation. Our only job is to mirror that of Jesus of reconciling the world to himself. How do we do that? By the reality of the Holy Spirit, the reality that the kingdom of God is at hand, and the reality that we can walk in the power and love and fullness with God in us, that people, when they see us, just as they saw Jesus, would say, if you've seen the Father, you've seen me. I know that's a big statement, but Jesus says you would do even greater works than me. So when people experience us and they see us and they feel our love and they see our justice and they see our acts and they see us gathering together, not for the profit, but for the actual only profit being that of spiritual wellness and health to lead us more towards the reality of the reconciliation of all things, that that is actually living in the way and the life of Jesus. And we get the fullness of life from that. Jesus is the prototype of what it means to be fully alive, fully one with God, to live an abundant life, to truly transcend all politics, all religion, all culture, all things. So getting really excited. Are you tracking with me? I hope you're tracking with me. So, you know, if you're listening to this at work, you know, just, you know, just nod. You don't have to say you're tracking with me, but if you're in your car, just tell me you're tracking with me. Okay. I know I'm speaking quickly and it's because I'm really passionate. I really, really, really love this stuff and I think it can help you a lot. So who is Jesus? Where's my stance on Jesus? I'm still working through a lot of that. Uh, I believe that Jesus is the Christ and I believe that that word Christ makes Jesus who he is. Apart from the word Christ, this man's name is just Joshua. Let's be honest. Jesus is Aramaic for Joshua. Okay. Or I'm sorry, Yeshua. Sorry. If you want to get literal with it, Yeshua is just Joshua who we translated English Jesus. And without the nature of Christ, he isn't who he says and acts and believes to be in the same way us. Paul says Christ in us, the hope of glory, this Christ consciousness, this Christ awareness, that Christ who embodied Jesus is the Christ who embodies us, that enables us to live in the exemplary life of Jesus of Nazareth. So was Jesus God? I believe absolutely uh, he, he embodied God. And I believe God looks like Jesus. God looks like Jesus. People, why don't you say Jesus looks like God? Because God looks like Jesus. People have been trying to record and trying to do things throughout the Jewish culture for, for thousands of years. And there is this understanding of God and he's constantly progressing. You know, you look back to Abraham and it's like, you know, do you think it's weird that whenever he was going to sacrifice Isaac, that nobody batted an eye? Do you realize how bizarre and how weird that is? Like, the reason why child sacrifice was normal. Mind you also in Gehenna, that's another place where child sacrifice took place outside of Jerusalem for people that still did that. That was still an ancient tradition and practice. People don't always progress and move forward. There are people that still do bizarre effed up stuff like sacrifice their kids in the day of Jesus. But rewind thousands of years, Abraham, that was a normal thing in cultures to sacrifice a child to the gods for favor. 
And Abraham received this word from God that he is going to be, uh, you know, the the father of a nation, that, that his descendants will be as many as the stars. And, you know, God asked for child sacrifice. And everybody says, absolutely. If God is giving you this promise, then that means he wants a sacrifice. And the most greatest sacrifice is to sacrifice a son, uh, which can lead more to um, some ideas of atonement that we'll get to. But to stay on this is that there is a progressive view of this God. What happens? He takes Isaac up. Nobody tries to stop him. Nobody questions him. Nobody does anything. I think Isaac's even asking, you know, dad, where's the sacrifice? And he says, God will provide because he's trusting that God is going to do a new thing. God isn't going to hold to the same old uh, barbaric tradition of sacrificing a human. He is going to do a new thing. And I believe Abraham knew that just as Jesus was going to do a new thing. Abraham was had faith that God would do a new thing, and God did. He did something that was super progressive in those day and age. He provided a ram instead. He provided another sacrifice. He provided a sacrifice that was less violent. And as we progress, we begin to see that God becomes more expansive, more loving, less violent, less, you know, purging man, woman, children, and animal. As you read some of those old ancient scriptures, I mean, you know, our understanding of God changes. He never does. And I think the pinnacle of God's revelation, the pinnacle of God's narrative, the pinnacle of God's character of who he is, what he truly wants and what he truly desires is exemplified in the person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And that is where we see the pinnacle of God's expressive, inclusive, all-loving, all-giving, self-sacrificing, not of this world nature exemplified in the person of Jesus. So uh, with that, his atonement. What does that mean? What does the atonement really mean for us? Uh, is it substitutionary atonement? Did Jesus have to die in our place for our sins? Or is it more of a reality of this is sacrificial love that whenever you believe something, whenever you trust something, you die for it. And he is setting the example for a, for a moral lesson to be learned that this life of love isn't necessarily the life that uh, the rest of our politics and culture want to uh, admire. And so like a sheep to the slaughter, he goes as an example for all of us that we can't lose sight of the life of love and sometimes even to the point of death. And so the resurrection is the resurrection to the awareness that love always wins, even to the point of death, that even though they who do not know what they are doing kill love itself and the reality is afterwards they say truly this was the son of god and then we see resurrection begin to happen in the lives of people um so i don't know uh if if it you know uh what all it was i would like to err on the side of and i believe that sacrifice was something that was very common in that culture and i believe that you know, certainly Jesus died uh, as a example of that he is the sacrifice for all sin. I believe he did the, I believe it's called the, um, the moral something or other theory. There's like six atonement theories. Uh, and the reason I word the, use the word theory is because that's a technical term. Um, every idea about scripture because it's not painted clearly. There isn't like a verse that says, and this is why he died. We do have those verses, but once again, that's through our interpretation, our understanding, our lens, our, our framework at the time there, you know, we, we, 
have to take all theories into account. Substitutionary atonement being the most prominent one in the evangelical Western world, it isn't the only theory of atonement. No one theory can accomplish the magnitude of the life and death of Jesus and the um, you know, resurrection of Jesus. No one theory can embody it all. So I err on the side of and. Yes, I, I believe that he was, you know, um, sacrificed just like, you know, uh, in all other, uh, you know, cultures, thinking that sacrifice was the only way to be made right with God. I mean, I think there is merit to that, but I think that if we serve a God that obviously was able to provide a different sacrifice for Abraham, I don't know why he would have to do that to his own son, uh, Jesus. Um, but that is a topic for discussion. So lastly on this, uh, I do just want to wrap up with my last point here. I know this is a longer episode. Thank you for sticking with me. But if you would like to know more about the historical Jesus, uh, I have a friend in Ocean Beach. His name is John, um, and he did a podcast um, basically, or he did a, he actually did a teaching. He did a live teaching um, and the um, it's recorded and you can find that on iTunes and uh, it's called The Jesus Journey. Uh, so it's our friend John. He was part of the Spiritual Journey Center where Corey has been a part of. And he did a episode, uh, five different episodes uh, that uh, were posted from a teaching that he did called The Jesus Journey. If you have more interest about the historical Jesus, you can check that out there. Um, also, too, I'll reference again Brian McLaren's book, A New Kind of Christianity. I think that's crucial as well. Also, I would just note uh, what I've been doing is I've been reading through the Gospels through the lens, not assuming that he is God, but through the lens of what it might look like to just be a normal uh, Jewish person in the first century. It seems like people were really uncertain about who Jesus was. Was he a prophet? Is he a kook? Is he, is he true? And I think that the disciples, they say, you know, whenever Jesus says that I am the bread of life and everybody turn, like so many people turn away and he looks to his disciples and he says, are you going to turn away too? And they speak up and they say, how can we turn away from you? You have the words of eternal life. And what they're saying is you have the words that bring the fullness and the magnitude and the, the en enlightened understanding of what it means to be one with God and fully alive. How could we go to anyone else? Even though this is a difficult teaching, we believe you. And it was a difficult teaching because the Jewish people absolutely refuted him so much so that they conspired with the politicians to hang him on a cross. Um, so that's where I'm at with Jesus. Uh, I believe that, that Jesus is the Christ. I, uh, at, at this point in time, I'm still doing a lot of research on stuff. I'm young. Uh, I can hold things openly and still believe in them. I believe that Jesus is reconciling all things, that the Spirit of God is at work. Um, you know, I, I, at this point I hold that Jesus did raise from the death because death can't hold love down. Uh, hate never wins. It might feel like it wins in the moment, but love always wins so much so that Jesus got out of the grave. Um, so that's where I stand with Jesus. I believe that Jesus is the Christ. I'm a Trinitarian. I believe in Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And, um, you know, uh, obviously this podcast doesn't end here. So we have many more episodes to come to expound on it. But my last point here for topics that I want to clarify is the church. And this will lead into next week's episode. The church is in a transition point right now 
And I believe with all of my heart that churches are the center of change. Churches can be the agents of all things. I know I keep using that word, but man, it's just been beautiful to see in my own life that God is working out all things all the time. And it's so humbling and it's so moving. And I believe in the church. And as much as that word church has been absolutely bastardized and the word pastor has been absolutely bastardized, as much as I can't get away from them, I have to embrace them and say, I believe that I'm a pastor. And I believe that the church is capable of so much. And I believe that that we, as the collective people that are the church, are capable to see the reconciliation and to see absolutely the life of Jesus exemplified in our cities. And I just want to leave that note on the church that anybody that thinks that I don't love the church, um, they don't know me. And they don't know... um, my heart and I believe so much in, in, in people in the church and um, I'm kind of embarrassed right now I don't know why I'm so emotional but <laughs> I just really 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 believe in um, in people and I believe that when people are empowered by the spirit of God There are things that happen that can't happen by any other organization. I'm all for a bivocational thing. I'm all for churches transitioning themselves into coffee shops and trying to be places like that. And I've wanted to do different things. And I do have major ideas for what it looks like for here in Southern California for a church to to have its hands in multiple different things and to be a place for, uh, you know, Uh, for social and all of that, but more so than anything, a place where we experience God together and are empowered to go and reconcile our communities and the people around us and to live with a peace that we are reconciled. I just, I can't get away from that. And there's a lot of negative stuff about the church right now. And there's a lot of things that need work and change. And there's a lot of stuff to do, but we can't just forget it and move on. And we can't Even though it's changing and it's shifting, that's fine. But God loves his people. And when his people are together, we make the church and the church is beautiful. And if I can, you know, quote a worship, so I'm not really into worship music like, like at all. Um, But, you know, Gunger, you know, and he says, we're making beautiful things. We make beautiful things. You are making beautiful things, God. You make beautiful beautiful things and we are invited into the partnership in that and when the partnership is collective when the people are collected that is the historical term of church so regardless of all of the stuff I believe in the church maybe not as it sits right now I believe it has a lot of work as I just stated in the previous episode my life work is to to bring people into the fullness and the awareness of God in us together and collectively. And so that's what I'm giving my life to. And I invite you to give your life to it as well. Um, So with that, let me pull myself together here and uh, just say thank you for listening to the Spiritual Nomad podcast and uh, being a part of the Institutional Exodus series. 
and I'm excited just for next week to be able to share with you um, some ways that I think the church can be active, can reclaim, can be a part of owning our spirituality, of being a part of justice and service and being exemplary of the fruit of the spirit and understanding that it's okay to disagree and to doubt and to do all of these things that God is big enough for all of that. And so is his church. So thank you all once again for listening to the Spiritual Nomad podcast. Love you all.